people are a threat to their movement and are coming to burn your house down. An armed person is harder to coerce than an unarmed person. Hey, <laughs> yeah, cold open. That would be a cold open. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three of the Shoot, Shovel, and Shut Up podcast. I'm still Donovan, here today with my friend Oren. And I'm still Oren. He's, he's been Oren for a while. OT to some. Yep. Um, yeah. What are we talking about today? A lot. Or not a lot. It just depends on our energy. It's late. Yeah, we're recording this at, I think, 9 p.m. Which to some people sounds like lightweight numbers, but to working men, some with families, that's getting late. Ever since I got married, which has been like a year and a week now, it'll be a year and a week on Sunday because I just had my anniversary. Congratulations. Um, but marriage, I've learned, turns you old. And me and Elizabeth are normally both in bed snoozing by 9.30. Really? That is And old. it is so nice. And I try to wake up at 5.30. Normally, it's closer to like 6 or 6.30. So did I get me like, I can get me like a healthy nine hours a night. Well, remember what we talked about in the last podcast where the nation as a whole and the Western world, us with, with, with media, social media are chronically underslept because yeah. we spend so much time on our phones and because of electricity in general, we keep the lights on later. So like getting nine hours of sleep a night, super healthy for you. You're probably not going to have dementia. No, I hope not. I'm going to try really hard not to. Um, but yeah, I try it. I'm really bad at right before bed. I'll watch like a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. And then the first thing I do when I wake up is I have my phone set to where it'll turn on like a, just like a sleep setting to where like all my notifications are silenced and it, but it'll like do my alarms. Mm. Um, but I won't see like any of my text messages or if something like pops up on Instagram, like it won't notify me of anything. I have it set to do that until 7.30, which is when I leave for work, or maybe like 7.15. It's set from like, it'll be 10.30 at night to 7.15 in the morning. Mm -hmm. But I turn it off on my own, and then I lay in bed and scroll for like 10 minutes. Um, I want to stop doing that. So I'm going to, I'm just going to not do that anymore. Well, I again, call back to our previous episodes. You know, you, you have, I think in both podcasts, talked about the value of reading. And so maybe you could take that time and, and read a book with a little nightlight before going to bed instead of scrolling. Yeah. I have not, I'm going to be completely honest with you, Donovan, that book that we're supposed to be reading for, you know, Wednesday mornings. I don't think I've touched it since November. Gospel treason. Yeah. Gospel treason. I'm committing group treason. I haven't read it since the second chapter. Can I be honest with you, Warren? I would have it no other way. We know you haven't read it since yeah. November. Okay. It shows. Every time I show up. Every time you show up. Or don't. Or don't. Well, see, here's the thing. I don't much like the book. What? Okay. The, let's, give me 30 seconds, and then we're going to talk about what we actually want to talk about. Tell me what you don't like about gospel treason. Other than, does it make you feel bad? No, it doesn't make me feel bad. It makes me feel bad. It makes me want to be a better man and a better Christian. Well, that's a good, because I think that's the point of the book. And there have been parts of the book where I've gone, hey, that's a really good point. But I think my overall takeaway from the book, just like as it has been written, I find it to be, I don't know. I think it's written sometimes oversimplified. 
or just like, uh, I don't want to say dry because it's not dry. There are theology books that are really dry and heady. I feel like this is the opposite of that. I feel like it's dry and then shallow. Some parts, yeah. yeah. I'll agree with you like, there. Like where I'm like, this could have been said a lot quicker. Or I wish he would have dove into this point a lot more. I don't know. I'm not an author. I've never written a book. So I don't want to be too critical. But it's just like I've read other theology-esque books, Christian living books that have really engaged me a lot more than this one has. And I'd like the last thing I want to do when I meet with you guys in, on Wednesday mornings is talk about this book. Yeah. And it's not because it's, it's challenging me really hard. Like there are some spots that it, like when it does challenge me, that's when I'm enjoying Like I want to talk about it. <laughs> Yeah. Is because I feel like then there's something to engage on. But a lot of times I'm just reading the pages and I'm like, I feel like we're just skipping over the good stuff and maybe going deep in like something that's kind of, it didn't need to go deep into. I don't know. But again, I haven't read that much of it, so maybe I need to give it more of a chance and keep reading it. I would. At least read it because you have to. See, maybe that's also part of it. I don't like people telling me I have to read books. Yeah. Well, it's why I didn't do well in college. What do you sign up for? Anyway, um, I want to talk about my experience that I had on Friday. Wait, before we jump into that, do, do, do you have a random fact for the week? Random fact for the we week? Because we got to open with that one. I don't, do you? Yeah. All right, yeah, you do. I would just won't have one this week. Maybe okay. I'll think of one while you say yours. I hope so. Okay, yeah. All right, so my random fact of the week is, did you know that during World War II, my favorite historical topic. The United States employed, well, not just the United States. Every nation began employing bomber formations, strategic bombing on a mass level for the first time in human history. Mm -mm. The very first time. I mean, you could argue that the First World War involved strategic bombing. And, but it, it was so limited and didn't do, you know, didn't have a lot of effect that I don't count it. But then airplane technology made such a leap forward in the interwar period between World War I and World War II that now the options of killing people using flying machines grew exponentially. Mm. Like if the Wright brothers, I'm not sure when they passed away, and that's my failing as a historian, but if the Wright brothers saw what was accomplished with airplanes in World War II, I think they would have their minds would have been blown because you know their little thing that they built that they flew in Kitty Hawk was basically a kite with an engine strapped to it and it yeah. flew hundreds of yards and now you've got bombers with four engines flying at 45,000 feet and going 2,000 miles that's crazy anyway my point my fact of the day uh, is that <clears throat> this allowed for an entire new theater of war which I say a theater of war. It's an area in which a war is fought. So in World War II, you had two main theaters. You had the European theater. Actually, you had three. You had the Western European theater. You had the Eastern European theater. And then you had the Pacific theater. Why they call it a theater, I don't really know. But they do. But this involved a fourth theater. And it was the theater of the air war. And it took... To, I remember I read a book called Masters of the Air. And they called it the, the theater three miles above Earth. Mm. This is where this war was fought. Uh, and what was crazy to me when I read this is that, so the Marine Corps, the United States Marine Corps, was the branch of the military that fought in the Pacific primarily. There were some Army units there. But by and large, the Navy and the United States Marine Corps 
was the America's fighting arm in the Pacific. It was the Army that was, and the Air Force. Well, the Air Force didn't exist yet. It was the Army Air Corps, but I won't get into that. Uh, that were doing the bombing raids in Europe, right? They're flying from bases in, in England, and they were flying across the English Channel, and they were bombing cities in Germany, right? This is what was so mind-blowing to me when I read up on this. There was an entire war being fought in the Pacific with the Marines, right? They're on the ground. They're getting shot at. You know, they're getting artillery shelled. You know, they're getting blown up with grenades. All this crazy stuff. There is a real war being fought with dozens of battles, thousands of lives lost in the three years that the Marine Corps was in the Pacific. This is what's crazy to me. In airplanes above France and above Germany and above Belgium, in the 8th Air Force, well, not just in the 8th Air Force, yeah, in the 8th Air Force alone, which was a bomber, a bomber flight, right? They're all B-17 bombers. More men died flying B-17 bombers than the entire Marine Corps lost mm -hmm. in the Pacific fighting a ground war. It was some 48,000 men perished flying bombers over Germany in World War II. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Like, because you think about um, air wars, and it's usually something that can be violent. You know, you, you're, you're, you know, you have the possibility of ending in a fiery death, mm -hmm. falling to earth, right? But you don't, like, because it doesn't involve as many people in the air. So you just don't think of the losses on that scale. But they were losing so many bombers, and they were sending so many bombers, so there was lots to be lost. Uh, that by the end of the war, they lost some 48,000 flyers. And it was more than the entire Marine Corps waging a ground war in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. It's crazy to me. Thousands of Marines getting killed. It, one air wing, the 8th Air Force, lost more people. And like right now in the Air Force, don't we have like less than 200 F-15s or something. It's F-22s. F-22s. We made like 124 of them. Yeah. It was like Obama actually canceled the order of them. It's the greatest plane ever made, according to my understanding of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but to be fair, it's kind of like trying to find allocation of resources because those things are so expensive to make. But again, it, yeah, it's like back then. Now, if we tried to do the same strategic level bombing, it wouldn't be possible because they'd all get knocked out of the sky by anti-air defenses. Yeah. That ex that technology didn't exist then, so we were able to use strategic bombing. But this is another thing that's crazy. It's a little extra little tidbit for the listeners, and I promise the history nerd stuff is about to end, so hang in there if you're not into this. But by the, this was crazy. Before the war started, strategic bombing on the level that was achieved during the war was impossible technologically. It was achieved during the war, and utilized throughout the war. And then by the end of the war, it was out of date. It could no longer be used because of technology. That's how fast technology was developed mm -hmm. during the war. Yeah, and right now it seems like in wars, at least everything's either like tech, like technology-based or it's just kind of under the radar. Mm -hmm. It's like stuff happens in secret without the other side knowing. We've become then... so good at killing each other. Yeah. But then you look at something like, you know, if you believe... There's people out there that don't. If you believe what's going on in Ukraine right now, that has devolved into a very tech, like uh, conventional conflict. You know, you've got troops on the ground. You know, there's the tanks are getting knocked out. You know, it's like you know we we have come to think in because of the war on terror that 
war has devolved into just, you know, <laughs> drone striking people. Yeah. But it's like, man, when you start dealing with countries without the United States resources, warfare can devolve into a really conventional... Very gruesome. Very gruesome. Yeah. It's just like, man, there, there, there's people fighting in trenches, you know, in Ukraine. It's like, we thought that trench warfare was over after World War One. And here we are, you know, people digging in, making trenches. It's just like there's some things that don't change about war. And there's a lot that does. Don't get me wrong. You know, warfare changes. But All right. History, history moment over. And Donnie will bring a fun fact next week. Uh, yeah, I will think of one for next week. It, doesn't, it can be literally anything. Okay. Hey, and if you guys want to share your fun facts, listeners, go ahead and write them to us. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel now. It's called Shoot, Shovel, and Shut Up. You can speak. You don't have a mic. Uh, yeah, it is. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was staring down our wonderful producer, I thought you were the odd nun. No, no, no. no. I, was, I couldn't remember. I, I, I wasn't sure if it was just Shoot, Shovel, and Shut Up. So if you guys want to watch these episodes, they are on YouTube. And Donovan and I sometimes look dapper. Yeah. I, I don't look as dapper as Donnie did. I had a black shirt with three buttons on it last He time. looked good last episode. He had a beautiful smile, too, for our still shot. There we go. We just Still do. Still got it. Hey, you do. Anyway, yeah. so that's my interesting fact for the week. Very cool. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Um, so I had a new experience on Friday where for the first time in well, my entire life, but more specifically in my time, Concealed carrying a firearm mm -hmm. that I thought I was actually going to have to use it. Really? Yeah. And I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, what was going on through my head in the moment. Because, like, until then, I've always wondered, like, what would I actually think in a moment where, you know, I feel in danger. Somebody else has a gun. I think I'm going to have to pull my gun. For sure. Um, like, would I, be, would I be calm? Would I be freaking out? Would I know what to look for and what not to look for? Um, which luckily in this situation, like the police were there and um, they were able to defuse the situation before any of us had to. Yeah. Um, but basically it involved, I was at a, a buddy's house. Um, a few of us were there hanging out and there was a belligerent drunk neighbor um, that we had to call the police on. Mm -hmm. um, he, I guess, put, put it all together that we were the ones who called the police and he drove down on a golf cart. Uh, cop car right behind them and he's drunk and yelling at us and everything and the next thing we know he's got a shotgun out really? and we're taking cover yeah but it was about just three minutes of yelling before this we'd already heard him shoot off gunshots and so we kind of figured like all right this guy's probably armed right now even if we don't see anything yeah um and i remember in the moment the first thing i thought was i was thinking about my clothes because I was wearing this hoodie, where if you're watching on the YouTube, you can see the hoodie I'm wearing, and I also had a zip up. And so one of uh, one of the main principles of concealed carrying and having like a quick draw, like to your gun, is like one to the gun, like one yep. layer of clothing. You don't want to have to phone book your way to the gun. No, not at all. That was the first thing that's going through my mind, as well as do I have a round chambered? And these are two questions you I had was to asking ask that myself. To no, I knew there was a round chamber, okay, but I'm okay. like, what if? Because and so it's like this whole experience is like changed the how I'm dressing, yeah. how I carry. There was a, um, well, yeah, I don't need to get into that, but mm -hmm. yeah, I was going thinking of like, all right, I don't have 
one layer to the gun right now. That mm -hmm. was the first mistake I had made. And so I'm trying to think about like, all right, if I have to go, then like I'll have to get two garments out of the way and everything. And it's like, even then, is there one in the chamber? I'm going to have to rack it when I come out. And then I'm like, thinking through all these things that could slow me down. Mm -hmm. all, thinking through all this while also realizing, like just keeping my eyes on this guy and knowing that, all right, if I see a gun and feel that I'm in danger, I have every right to pull my gun out and shoot him. Mm -hmm. And so like in the moment, I wasn't, you know, panicked at all or freaking out like, oh, I hope he doesn't do this. I hope he doesn't do this. It was just like, all right, I am uh, confident in my abilities, knowing that I have trained enough and am prepared enough to where if he does something, I know exactly what to look for to know that I'm well within my rights to pull my gun and shoot him if I have to. Mm -hmm. All that to say, uh, to anyone who concealed carries um, a pistol, consider these three things. What do you wear day to day? Does it allow you to get to your gun quickly? Um, how do you carry your gun? Do you carry it where you're ready to shoot it at any moment's notice? Because honestly, I never thought I would be in a situation like this because I'm like, I'm probably going to do all this training and everything to be prepared. And I'm never going to get in a situation in my life where I may have to pull my gun. Right. This is the closest I've ever gotten. And I never thought this would happen. Like, right. It was a crazy experience. Um, and then do you know your laws well enough to know when you can and can't shoot a man? Right. Um, those are important. Yeah, they're very important, um, which ended up, you know, he pulled out a shotgun and because the police were there, we just kind of took cover and they pulled out their guns and um, we're kind of just keeping it controlled and contained. I don't think he ever actually pointed it at anybody. I'm not real sure on just, you know, I'm not, I didn't really remember any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so we, I luckily didn't have to, you know, like draw on somebody, but yeah. definitely like all the thoughts were there and. So you're, you're pleased with yourself because the mental reps and the training have given you the headspace, one, to, to think about a situation like that. And so when it happened, it didn't take you completely off guard. Right. And then secondly, the physical training you've done gave you the confidence that if you had to act in a self-defense way, you weren't, you're, you be, what you're saying is you weren't overwhelmed by the prospect of a, a very real prospect of potentially having to do that. Yeah. I and know. you're worried where it's just like, man, if this is an, if this happens, I've heard it's overwhelming. You get this massive adrenaline dump. Am I going to be able to function? Like, mm -hmm. that's what you were worried about. And oh, you're yeah. like, I kind of want to be tested in this way because I want to know that I have what it takes to be able to stand in the pocket and deliver when, when something, when it's, when a threat presents itself. Yeah. It was a perfect situation where it was like, I felt like anything could happen at any moment where mm -hmm. I could have to do something. And then luckily I didn't, yeah. but it was enough of an experience to know like, all right, I think this is how I would mm -hmm. like react in this situation. Yeah. Well, and to, and to be clear to our audience, like Donovan is not saying, and I would never say also that we want to be in a situation where we kill somebody. No, not at all. I'm so glad I didn't have to draw my gun. Yeah. I'm trying to think, if I did have to, <clears throat> if I did have to, and I had to shoot the guy, mm -hmm. like that's something I would carry the rest of my life. Yeah. Like I would never go a day without thinking about that. And like I didn't have to pull a gun in this situation. Mm -hmm. And I've still thought about it every day, just replaying it and replaying it. Yeah. Like I very well could have had to. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the police were there. Honestly, yeah. I think if the police were there, who knows what would have happened. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, to be, to be fair, I, I wasn't there, so I can't say. You know, but who knows if the guy actually had malintent. You know, he probably was like, he, like you said, he was drunk. So, but and he was mad. He was drunk and angry and whipped a golf cart right down that road. Right, but it's just like it's like 
a guy like that, like if I if I can, <laughs> this is gonna sound bad. Uh, please, listeners, dear listeners, take this in the heart in which it is offered. If I'm ever in a shooting, I don't want to get into a shootout. I don't want to have to shoot. I don't want to have to put holes in the person who's like drunk and belligerent and probably would regret their words the next day. Yeah. Like if I get into a shootout, I want to be. I want it to be with somebody who's like being malicious. You know, like I, I don't want to shoot somebody who's being an idiot. I'd ra- I would rather get into a gunfight with somebody who's being intentionally like they want to cause harm to somebody. Right. And I, and again, I wasn't there, so I can't speak as directly to this guy's heart. But I imagine he's more one of those persons who's kind of bitter at life. And and looking maybe for like a fight, but he doesn't want to actually hurt somebody. Yeah, and you know that's what I mean? where I don't. But you couldn't you couldn't know that in the situation, so no. you wanted to be ready. This was my first interaction ever with this person, mm-hmm. and so I only know. I only know them in their drunken, angry state. Right. Um, and so, like, who? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know his character as a sober man at all. Um, mm-hmm. I just know this person probably made the decision to be drunk. Yeah. And uh, probably also knows how he gets when he's drunk. Yep. And I'm, in, yeah. in doing so, he is. He's at fault for both of those For things. sure. And I would never say that you wouldn't, like a person wouldn't be in their right to defend themselves against a belligerent drunk who in their drunken stupor decides to point and, God forbid, pull a trigger on somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody gets shot because they're being drunk and stupid with a gun, that is their fault entirely. Yeah. But I, what I'm saying is that would be a really crappy situation to be in. Like it would be harder to feel good about it because you're just like, man, this guy could have avoided it entirely if he was just better with his alcohol. Whether re, re, in, in comparison, it's like somebody like goes out, like like somebody who's robbing a convenience store, like especially especially with a with a real gun. You know, there are idiots out there who will rob a grocery store or a convenience store with a fake gun. Like we saw. That happened recently where a guy was holding up a store with a fake gun. Ended up getting killed for it because somebody was there ready to defend themselves, thought yeah. the gun was real, and shot the guy. If, if, you know, if you're convincing people to give you your money, you'll give you their money because you've got a gun on them and you're convincing your fake gun is real, yeah. then you've also convinced them that the gun is real and so they can shoot you. Yeah, and it's crazy the different laws in different places where, like, I forget where we were talking where we're talking about it is um but like if you see somebody walking down the road and they're just like holding like let's say they're holding like an ar or something and they're walking down a public sidewalk yeah with their ar if you feel in danger you are within your rights to shoot them they don't have to be on your property or anything i wish i remembered where this is i want to say it's like texas or something but i don't want to be wrong um, i haven't heard that rule i know the opposite so like in minneapolis you can get prosecuted for somebody who for shooting somebody who breaks into your house. Yeah. If you have a the, what their law says is if you have a route of escape, you are lawfully obligated to take the route of escape before defending your own property. Like it has to be a situation where they're like got a gun to your daughter's head or something before apparently, you can shoot them. Yeah, apparently you can break into somebody's house without malicious intent. Right. Which I don't understand, and so which I can I can appreciate somebody trying to make the law of like 
uh, somebody's life isn't worth your stuff, which I can appreciate from a Christian perspective of all life being sacred. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like, I'm not going to shoot somebody for sticking me up for my wallet. But I will shoot somebody who pulls a weapon on me for my wallet. Because I don't know if they want my wallet and my life. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And especially if I'm with family. And, like, let's say, you know, I'm with family and somebody's out there ready and they, they, they come up to mug me. What's in my wallet doesn't really matter to me, and I do not want to kill somebody over it. But I'm going to defend. But if a if a weapon comes out, it it's been plenty plenty documented that you know just capitulating and and saying, man, I I don't want any trouble. Here's my wallet. There's been plenty of people caught on camera taking the wallet and then shooting the person they stole the wallet. Like it's it's crazy. People out there are crazy. Get and the you, money, shoot the witness. Yeah. yeah. And so um, and so it's not about protecting the wallet. I do not want to shoot somebody over my wallet. And I would hate to be in a situation where somebody's got a weapon on me. Yeah. And their desire is my wallet. Because I'm like, man, don't die over this. <laughs> uh, because I don't know if you're going to kill me afterwards or not. You know, and you, ne- you never know because they could be hopped up on some kind of drug, you know, and they'd be in a brain adult state and make a poor decision. Or even just like freak out over something and pull the trigger um, and accidentally kill me. I don't want to die and I don't want my family to be put in danger. And I want to be in a situation where I am capable of defending myself. And that goes into kind of the firearm thing I want to talk about during this podcast, which is, man, I wish I had my notes. I'm going to look and see if I put it in my phone notes. Bear with me, dear listeners. Um... Basically, it was this 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 topic was um, inspired by a comedian who was talking about. Oh, okay, good. I can I can talk about the comedian while I'm looking for my notes because I remember what he was talking about. He was making the joke that people who carry guns because they believe in the Second Amendment are dumb. Because, let's be honest, he's, this is what he was saying. Anybody who carries a, a gun kitted out with a... He, he's like, okay, it made sense in 1776, he said, when everyone had the same technology. Mm. It was very easy for everybody. It was like He was like, I agree with it 100%. The Second Amendment made 100% when it was penned in 1776, which the Constitution wasn't written in 1776, but... I'll let him slide. Um, Because it was easier to... Basically, his argument was it was easier to overthrow the government in in that time than it is now. Because he's... And he said... said, man, that... that, that, You know know the guy? The guy that's got all of his Kevlar from head to toe and he's got his AR-15? What's he going to do against a drone? (laughs) <laughs> Which is funny. That's the bit. Like he, he, his biggest point wasn't to make a political argument, but it was to make a joke, and that's kind of funny because it's true. Oh yeah. Uh, if you bring an AR-15 to a drone fight, you're gonna lose. However, I think he's missing. I think that I think that's how people like take the gun argument, and it's like that's at its face value. And they're like, yeah, all these people who are saying they're going to carry guns because they want to have the power to overthrow a corrupt government. They're stupid because the corrupt government is more powerful than them and is going to beat 
He's, they're going to beat you every time. All right, let me stop talking and actually look up my notes. <laughs> and I think that's really short. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Nope. That's last episode's notes. Oh, hey. Tony, what are you drinking? I'm drinking an Ale 8. What is yeah. Ale 8? It is a, a beverage from Kentucky. That mm -hmm. is, um, some would compare it to like a ginger ale or a Sierra Mist. It's, it tastes better, I think, than both of those. It's got a... Ale 8 1. Ale 8 1? What? Is that what that is? Yeah, so it's a play on words. Because it's a... Oh, a late one. A late one. A late one. Yeah. Learn something new. Yeah, established in... 1926. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty good. It's a it's a lot sweeter, I'd say, than like a ginger ale. Yeah, it's got a lot of sugar and a lot of caffeine in it. Yeah. Um, it was uh brewed uh for a competition, and won first place, and then they just kept making it. And the nickname in Kentucky is uh, Kentucky Swamp Water. Yep. I love that stuff. Yep. I'm drinking water. Because I already drank this can, but I wanted it to be on the podcast. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to watch our YouTube video. But I rep it hard because I think it's the best energy drink on the planet. Donnie disagrees, but I genuinely like it. It's pretty mid at best, I think. Ah, this 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 flavor is really good. All right, actually, I'm gonna pull back the curtain. I only bought it because it says Jocko on it. Oh, frick you! <laughs> we gotta make him watch it. This no, is it is. It's, I only bought this, it. It's this. It's this flavor. Video is gonna be on the Spotify. I only bought it because it says Jocko, and I thought it was okay. I got the coconut mango one. I think is what the flavor is. That is the only flavor I've tried. Maybe the green apple is better, <laughs> or the sour apple. But honestly, I hate sour apple flavoring in anything. Um, that's that's my. I'm so. drinking water out of it because water is the best energy drink. Yeah, I agree. But uh, I think that this one's a winner, and it's a lot more healthy, at least as advertised as being a lot more healthy. And I don't think Jocko would lie to me. No. I only got it because Jocko told me to go get some. He does say that. Yeah. Get some. Go get some. Jocko, anyway. out. Jocko, you should be on the podcast. Hey, Jocko, if you ever want to come out here from California and have a show with two idiots who absolutely adore your work, we would have you in a heartbeat. We'd even pick you up from Atlanta. It'd be really good for him too. It'd be, yeah, yeah, it'd be good for you, Jocko. Yeah, you, you would you would reach a bunch of people who already listen to your podcast. Bring as many of these crap energy drinks with you as you want. I will drink them. Donnie will not because he's not a shill. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not though because I genuinely like the product. No, I'll I'll try out some other flavors, All right. Jocko. All right, I've got an unopened sour apple. Not tonight. Okay, yeah, that's smart. Okay, anyway, back to my point. So this guy's saying Second Amendment supporters are dumb because there's no way we could stand up to the United States military, right? I agree. And I would agree on its face. If, if, if American gun owners were to revolt and be pitted one-on-one -on -one or like group-on-group -group against the United States military, we would lose. Yep. 90% of the time. 99% of the time. It would really have to be like a... And, and regardless... It would have to be a prolonged conflict like the Afghanistan conflict to win. Um, and a lot of people would die. Mm -hmm. A lot of people on the insurgent side would die. And so, but I think that misses the point 
because what I think is great about firearm ownership, I was talking about this quite a lot this week, and it's what um, inspired me to bring it up on the podcast, is firearm ownership is more than like being prepared to rise up against the government. And I don't, but, and I don't discount that. I think that is a valuable um, truth to gun ownership is an armed population is harder to oppress than an unarmed population. Mm -hmm. But it's more than that. It's, it's the fact that when you take gun ownership seriously, you are giving yourself more authority to deny the whims of others. Be it a mugger in the street or um, a mob of people that have decided you are a threat to their movement and are coming to burn your house down. An armed person is harder to coerce than an unarmed person. And the freedom to bear arms is the freedom to self-defense. When you take away the freedom to bear arms, you take away the freedom to decide how you want to live your life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. That is the point of our government system. And I firmly believe in that. I firmly believe that that still exists today in our country. Maybe some could argue, and maybe I would agree with them, that it's less than it was back in the day. But I also think that now more of a wider diversity of people now today are able to pursue the idea of life, liberty, and happiness than when our nation started. Um, you know, you think about Native Americans, you think about African Americans, um, anybody of color, it was difficult, if not impossible, for them to pursue the same freedoms as you know, the, the, the white European colonists. Mm -hmm. However, and, and so, and, and the, not to say that it isn't still difficult. And not to say that it isn't still difficult, but, but I think it's wrong, and this, is, this gets into a completely different conversation, but I think it's wrong to say that we haven't made progress in that area and that um, the United States is not the best place to live in if you want to pursue your own individual life. Mm -hmm. I think you have the best opportunity to do that here, no matter who you are. Um, but as soon as you take away the ability to defend yourself and your beliefs, I saw another comedian. I love comedians because I think they really hit home on a lot of true things through, through humor and, uh, the freedom to be a comedian, um, in, uh, today's world is really important. And if you silence comics, that is the first step to an authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. As soon as you tell somebody that they can't make a joke about that. Like, there are lots of comedians that I think make off-color, poor-taste jokes. And I'll just choose not to listen to them. But I'm not going to tell them they can't do it. Right? That's why I love Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Where Dave Chappelle gets on stage and he does, like, whatever he wants. He'll he'll smoke a cigarette, like, in a no-smoking, like, indoor venue or something just because he wants to. Which, at some point, you're kind of being, like, like a jerk and... um. He, he could get close, but at the same time, it's like you can have rules for, you know, what to do and not do in your club, like smoking a cigarette. But if you are paying money to go see a comedian, um, you need to be okay with whatever they're going to say. Right. Because they have the it's their show, not yours. You're the one that paid money to be here. Yep. Anyway, yeah. I agree 100%. And, uh, but, um, 
so this other comic was making the point that he said, uh, the first thing we wrote was people have a right to voice their opinion, no matter what it is. Freedom of speech. People can say it without fear of recourse, which today is not, enti is not entirely true. You know, you can get fired now, you know, and it's not just, uh, People like to say that, oh, we're changing. It's always been the fact that if you say something that the company you're working for feels is damaging, mm -hmm. people have always been fired for that. I think we've, what we've seen today is just a shift in what has been considered to be improper or damaging to the, gov the company, right? Anyway, um, but he was saying the first thing we wrote was you have the freedom to say it. He, then he said, that the joke was, the second thing we wrote but you better get a gun. <laughs> if you're going to say whatever you want, you have to have a gun. But I think there's some truth to that because it's like, if you want to be able to defend what you have to say, if something somebody gets really mad and tries to kill you for it, you got to be re ready to defend yourself and to defend that right to say what you want and to live how you want. Now, if the way you're living is impeding somebody else's pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, the pursuit of happiness, then it's wrong. And that's why we have laws. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, uh, this is a, you know, a mindset of, I see firearms as a tool to defend the sanctity of life. And I believe that life is sacred. And it's sacred enough to fight for. Mm -hmm. Which seems oxymoronic. I think this is where a lot of pacifists get that get, get get you know their ideology from is because they're like, well, yes, life is sacred, and so I'm never going to put myself in a situation to use violence against others. I don't subscribe to that belief system because I believe that if you are not willing to fight for what you believe in, then that belief system goes away. And as a Christian, I am willing to die for my faith because I believe that I have a God who's powerful enough to fight for me. Mm -hmm. That's not something I'm going to draw weapons over. And so somebody could call me a, a double-minded or a pacifist there. But I also believe that I have a right and I have a obligation to be capable of defending the people around me who I love, right, against... Um, assault yeah. and against tyranny. I don't know if you do this, but I feel like every time I'm carrying, just wherever I'm at, if I'm around certain people, it's like whenever I'm carrying, I am assuming the responsibility of being in charge of the safety of anybody who's immediately around me should a situation arise. Is that something, do you like consciously no like make that switch in your head which i guess i do that even whenever i'm not mm -hmm. caring but it's like all right if something was to go down mm -hmm. i feel responsible to be the one to handle it sure um just because i think i have confidence in my knowledge and in my abilities to be able to do something if i needed to do something yeah i think being in a position to um and being capable and being prepared to defend people around you is definitely the mindset that self-defenders should have. And it's not something I'm going to flaunt either. We're like, okay, guys, yeah, if anything goes down. We'll get to that. I'm your guy. That, that's something I do want to touch on. It's like the, the whole point is to 
to be very discreet and it's like you don't need to flaunt if you're the one who if you feel you're the one who it's not even like knowing the most and it's not a pride issue i think yeah with you know owning a gun and being responsible with it there's a lot of humility mm -hmm. that comes with it too mm -hmm. um there it has to you, it has you to have to have if humility. you're not humble with carrying your gun then don't carry your gun yes if otherwise you're making everybody uncomfortable yeah the, the people i think people who are prideful with their gun carrying are people who open carry but anyway, I want to I want to finish my point before I, I want to answer your question. That's a whole other and I'm gonna I'm gonna get well I'm gonna get into that briefly after this is that um, I don't necessarily when I put my gun on and I go out about my day I don't yes I say I I do think about it in the perspective of now I am capable I'm much more capable of defending like if I'm at work and for some some disgruntled former employee or whatever shows up to my business and they're going to start capping people. I'm like, I realize that now I'm in the place to best defend myself and the people around me, but I don't, I don't see it in the perspective of, okay, now I don the responsibility for people around me because I think that like, okay, again, let's go back to what I said in our first podcast. When we were talking about self-defense. If I'm like in Walmart, someday in the future, and I've got my wife with me, and an active shooter starts shooting up the Walmart, I'm not going to seek out that gunman to defend the people around me. Get your wife and get out of there. I'm going to get down and get out uh, because I feel like my responsibility is to defend my own life and to defend the life of my loved one. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But let's say on the way out, I'm running down a hall, and all of a sudden the gunman appears on the other end of the hall. That's when I'm going to draw my gun and, and and attempt to defend my life and my wife's life. Yeah, but I'm but I'm you know if I'm there by myself, I'm not going to go out of my way to be a, th a third party savior in that situation. And some people can disagree with me, but I don't believe that that is the first. We're not we're not called to be first responders um, in that situation. And it it does make it also yeah you got to think about it this way. Because of if you if you shoot somebody, no matter how justified it is, you're gonna go to jail for the night. You're mm -hmm. gonna have your gun taken, and you're probably gonna be wrapped up in legal litigation uh, for the next few years. And so I am not willing because I have the responsibility to defend myself and defend my family. <coughs> I've got to also take into account how, at what point do I need to cross the line from preservation to go on the offensive because mm -hmm. is it going to be worth the the subsequent stress fi financially and emotionally of what this is going to cost if i draw my weapon and go to work or with it yeah right and so i think to answer your question maybe maybe we're saying the same thing but um i don't feel like in donning my gun i become a protector a protector to strangers um, yeah, and it's, it's not like the, I wasn't ever saying like, I feel like I'm gonna have to go out of my way if there's ever like an active shooter thing. Mm -hmm. I fully agree with you on that. Like I would, you know, if, if this situation happened where I, you know, it was the best decision to do that, mm -hmm. then yeah, absolutely. Then, yeah. Um, but I think it's something where if you train properly, you'll know exactly what to do in that moment. Well, that's where like, 
you know, when when that that guy was at my friend's house while we were there, um, I never pulled my gun, even mm-hmm. though that person had a gun. But also, you know, the police were there. Yeah. And yeah, I could have been a savior and tried to do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where you just got to know in the moment, like what is the best decision for myself and the people around me. And if that decision is to get out, you'll know. I think with, if you train properly, you'll know if that decision is to take out an active shooter, yeah. then take out the active shooter. Yeah. Or is, if it's to escort people out of the Walmart or yeah. something, then yeah, do that. Yeah, and oh, this is a good point. Um, list, dear listener, get medical training. Uh, get be, be familiar with using tourniquets and 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 like you know first level trauma care. Uh, if, like for me, as somebody who's carrying a gun, I, like I've been doing a lot of research on um, medical pa- like first aid kits mm-hmm. for for gunshot wounds or for 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 stab wounds. You know, be able to not just be there as a first responder to a gunfight, but be there as a medical first responder for people who have been shot. You know, it might take a while for, for, for medical to get there. So, like, I, I have no issue with, like, if, if I have established that now it's safe for me to, to help save lives, I'm going to go out of my way to help that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, but if, but if, yeah, it's, it's just tough, you know, like, situations are so fluid in that regard. I just want, I want, people who carry guns to have a really self-preservation mindset to the way that they hold themselves. Yeah. It's, it's, it's be, be really selfish with yourself and be really selfish. I guess can't really, but, but have a, have a, have a list of, have a, have, have circles of importance where it's like first you, and then it's your family around you. And then it's friends and then it's strangers. You know, and they, 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 and once you know that you're squared away, and I'm not saying like save your life before your families. I'm saying a like list of importance where if you're not squared away, then you're not going to be in the best situation to then defend your family around you. So make mm-hmm. sure you're squared away first. Then you can make sure your family's squared away. Then once you make sure your family's squared away, then you can make sure your friends are squared away. Make sure your friends are squared away. Then you can start going to helping the people around you. And I think work through that triage or that, that list of um, importance um, in your mind so that if you're in ever in those, one of those situations, you're not overwhelmed by it and you start making decisions outside of that list of um, precedence you know, or importance. Mm-hmm. Um, what, <clears throat> because if you, if you have that mindset, then you're able to respond to anything that's a crisis, you know, natural disasters car accidents. Um, I was on the side of the road one time changing my tire. This is a crazy story. This is what actually meant to tell this story on the last podcast. This was involved in my going down to the airport to fly up for my awesome um, Minnesota, Wisconsin Christmas. This is a fun story. Uh, I, I won't get too bogged down in the details, but basically I had a flat tire on the way down there. And so I hopped out of the, my car, you know, I was, I was changing my tire. And about the time I got the first lug nut loose, on my tire, I'm on the side of the road. It's it's on I-75, go southbound. You know, head to Georgia. Everybody and their mom is out on the road. People are flying by me at 70 miles an hour, and I'm just like, man, I got to get this tire changed because somebody could be not paying attention and just absolutely send me to Jesus in a blink of an eye. Uh, and it, and then I'm I mean I get my one lug nut loose, 
I've got my back to the road, and I kid you not, not as far as from here to that wall. Maybe, maybe from here into the first bay where the where the lawnmower sits. I'm I got my back to the road, and all of a sudden I hear this really loud squeal of tires, and like bam! And I turn around just in time to see this Tahoe absolutely demolish the rear end of this little sedan. Uh, it, it's so violent that when I turn around. Uh, I see the back end of this sedan completely lifted off the ground and disintegrate. Mm. Both the front end and the back end of this car just absolutely crumples. Parts are flying everywhere, and it launches the sedan down the road, and it eventually pulls over like 70 yards down the road from me. Uh, but this Tahoe like stops in its tracks um, and then pulls... I can't remember if it pulls off the side of the road or if just the place that it ends up landing because of the accident, they get off the side of the road. But fortunately, the way that this accident transpires, both vehicles end on one, one, the, the Tahoe that does the hitting, bam, and is right across from me, is on the other side of the white line on the slow lane. And the car that got hit gets knocked into the other lane and eventually ends up on the other side of the white line on the left side of the road, the fast lane. And so I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to make sure these people are okay. And so I pull out my flashlight, which, by the way, men especially who are listening to this podcast, but really this applies to anybody, it carry a flashlight in your pocket. I do. It goes in my back pocket right next to my wallet. And this buddy right here is awesome. Um, I use it every single day for anything. Like, it's tough. I drop something on the ground, it's in the shadow, and boom, I turn it on. But this turned into an invaluable tool while I was on the road because it was in the middle of the night. And so I'm not wearing any high-vis stuff. I mean, I'm dressed very similarly to how I'm dressed now. It's, it, it, I'm wearing a black shirt and a camouflage vest. That's going to be tough to see on the road. And so I use my light. I turn it on, and I start kind of just shining it up and down, not to blind drivers, but to point myself out. Yeah. And so I get people stopped, and then I go across the road, run across the road to the Tahoe, and all the airbags are deployed. The front end is about half the size it used to be. And there's smoke in the car and everything. I got like, man, I got, I'm, I'm checking for fire. I'm checking for leaks. Fortunately, there's none of that. And I get them to unlock their door. I can't see the people inside because the airbags are all deployed. Yeah. Um, but I get them and unlock the door and I go to open the door and it's so bent that the door can't open. Uh, and so I use my tire iron, which I had in my hand still. Uh, they've got a flat, a flat head end on the tire iron. And I wedge that into the door, crack the door open, get my body inside. And I'm able to kind of press the door open. And then I duck under the, the airbag because there's airbags on the, the window sides as well. It's not just in the front. I duck under the airbag and there's um, a lady probably in her 20s and uh, a man in his 20s on the passenger side. And they are both just shook up because they just had airbags deploy right in their face. So they're probably concussed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, are you guys okay? Can you hear me? And like, every, like, I get them to tell me their names. I get them to tell me where they're going. You know, I, I establish that they're not too jacked up. Um, and I, and about that time, I hear screaming from the other car way down the road. And I'm like, oh no, they could be really jacked up. And so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna call first responders. They're gonna be coming. And I'm really careful because I don't know the state of these drivers. They could be drunk. They could be high. They could not want police to show up, so I don't reference police. I don't want them to get freaked out by me and start like 
you know, this is super unlikely, but this is another thing, kind of like what you were talking about with the situation with the crazy guy with the shotgun. I'm like, I don't, I don't know this situation. I don't know the mindset of these drivers. Mm-hmm. I want to be there to help them, but I also don't want to put myself in danger. So I just say, I've got first responders on the way. I never reference police. Um, and um, it's just hang tight here. You're off the road. Um, stay in the car and um, I'll be back. And I take off running. I get the, I use my flashlight again, my handy handy flashlight to stop traffic. I run across the road and then down the road to this other lady who has just kind of opened her door and is and is sobbing like she is hysterical. She's probably in her mid forties, um, and uh, she's just staring at her phone, which is all lit up. Um, and she's, she had gotten it open, but then she was just staring at it with her finger hovering over the screen, just in shock. And just in shock, she couldn't actually tap one of the contacts and i was like hey what are you trying to do she's like i'm trying to call my son and i was like i got you i I, I took i took the phone from her and i dialed her son i got him on the phone i explained that i was with his mom on the side of i-75 i was able uh, if you don't know already on on um on highways there are mile marker numbers uh and that is a way for you to call any rescue vehicles and to give a really accurate description of where you're at on mm-hmm. the highway. And so I was able to say, I'm on 575. I'm really close to the merge with I-75. I'm at mile marker eight. Uh, and so I, I, I tell her son that, and then I get off, the, uh, get off of the phone with him. He's on his way. And I ask her if I can use her phone to dial 911. And so I get on 911. I get on the phone with them. They start asking me all kinds of questions. They're like, sir, are you all right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just, I was just changing my tire on the side of the road. And all of a sudden this happened. <laughs> you know, she's like, okay, okay, what's your name? Uh, what are you driving? And like a bunch of questions. And then she started asking me, what are the makes of the cars? At this point, I've walked away from the lady in, the, in her car. And so now I'm kind of in between the two accidents or the two cars in the accident. And then she asks me, this is what's crazy. And this is what I've kept in my mind since then. She asked me, what are the makes and models of the vehicles and colors of the vehicles in the accident? And I didn't know. Uh, it, I was so overwhelmed, sensory overload from everything that had just happened. Mm-hmm. No idea. I had no idea. Like it, the car that had gotten cr- crunched into, it could have been a truck. It could have been a Kia, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so I actually had to run all the way back up to the first car to even see what color it was. And so then I was able to say, okay, it's a Tahoe and it's white. And I was able to run down to the other one and it was a, <coughs> I don't remember this one as well. The, the Tahoe really stands up. It, it was a black car and it was either a Lincoln or a Mercedes. Oof. It was a nice car. And it was totaled. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely. Both <laughs> cars were destroyed. I, she was trying to get into the trunk. She asked me to get in the trunk so I, should get, I could get to her medicine. And I was, at, which I don't know how important the medicine was because she couldn't even tell me what it was, but yeah. I think it was just something she had fixated on. And I, and I was, I looked at the trunk and I was like, yeah, there's no way we're getting into that without a saw. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I stayed on the phone with 911 until um, I saw sirens coming. It took them a long time to get there. And this, this also goes back to our original point of like the idea of carrying a gun to be ready to defend yourself it all comes with an overarching mindset of being your own first responder Mm -hmm. because we were close to Atlanta. You know, we were in the midst of a hub of a lot of um, infrastructure for response to crises, but it still took them probably 15 minutes to get there. If I wasn't there, 
make checking on all these people. You know, if one of them was in critical condition, not that I have a whole lot of medical experience, but I've got training as a first a wilderness first responder, which is higher up than wilderness first aid. You know, it's like I'm, I'm capable to set splints and to stop bleeding, to identify different ty- types of shock. But that's it. Don't you like carry a tourniquet with you? I used to. Um, but it, it, it busted, which made me realize that it was a training tourniquet. Oh. So make sure, man, this is a little hot, hot tip out there. Make sure you actually have a real tourniquet and not a training tourniquet. So I'm glad I never tried to use it because the spindle would have broken on me while I was trying to get good, yeah, you know, pressure with a tourniquet. But anyway, um, so fortunately, you know, but, but this, the, I tell this story to say one, it was really awesome to be involved in a situation where nobody's <clears throat> life was actually in, at risk. Yeah, but they but they also clearly needed somebody there who wasn't just in this traumatic accident to help them out, help them get sorted. Yeah. Um, and so what was really awesome is once I mean, dude, two full sized fire trucks arrived and about eight police cars showed up like it was overkill. And every time somebody new would show up to the. Uh, well, every every time somebody new would show up to the crime scene or the, the, the accident scene. They would come up to me and say, are you involved in this accident? And I'm like, no, just like I told this. I don't know entirely know how dispatch works, but I was like, I told this lady on dispatch that I was not involved in the accident like four times. They probably ask what your name is. and Yeah, they asked me what my name was. They asked what you looked like. like. And and so that way when they get there, they know who to look for to ask the questions. I suppose. But like she asked me all these questions and then they asked me what my name was and they asked me like why I was involved. Now it's just like, I guess she just sent them or maybe they were just trying to verify who I was. But in any respect, I, I, I felt like there wasn't good communication between dispatch and the, the people who arrived. Yeah. But anyway, they, they showed up and what was awesome was now I'm changing my tire and I'm surrounded by trucks that are blocking the road, which was awesome because now I didn't have idiots flying by me at 70 miles an hour while I'm changing my tire. And Never so once, felt so safe. Bro, it was awesome. Tire. It was awesome. I, I, I was able to just once, once they realized that I they didn't need to get any information from me because I didn't, I wasn't in the wreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just let me go back to changing my tire. And so I was able to change my tire protected by uh, Atlanta's finest police department and uh, fire, fire department. Got my tire on there and I was just like, hey, am I, can I just drive around this and keep going? And they were like, yep, absolutely. Thank you, sir. And so I got in my car and I start driving and there is zero traffic between me and the all the way down to the airport it was oh, yeah. awesome it's awesome being on the other side and i bet dude that, i bet there were people trying to maybe get to the airport on the other side of that wreck who did not make they it. were there for a while yeah they were stuck in bumper to bumper standstill traffic for a hot minute um but uh I, I i tell that story to just say one it was a crazy experience for me but two in in a similar regard to your situation I've always wanted to test myself and be like, do I have the more the, the mental fortitude and the moral fortitude to think about other people around me when a crisis happens? Will I be able to be useful in that situation? Or will the situation overload my brain and I, it force me to make bad decisions or put me in like all of a sudden like, oh, that freaked me out. And then I make no decision and I just paralysis by overanalysis. And I think the moral of both of our stories is 
you're not really going to know how you're going to react until you actually get into a situation like that. And I think you'd be, um, you'd be dumb to assume that you're never going to get into a situation like that. Cause I think everybody has something like that at some point, but also, well, real quick. And additionally to that, don't definitely don't assume you're not going to be in that situation, but also don't assume that just because you watch a lot of cool TV shows. Yes. That you are going to react positively. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, if you aren't certain how you're going to react, yep. just keep preparing for those moments to happen. Yeah. Until they happen, do what you know how to do after the fact, mm-hmm. and then whenever it's all over, go prepare some more. Yeah, because I've got great notes now. I'm just like, okay, I need to be more aware of, like, just something as simple as what's the color of a vehicle, uh, because. I wasn't aware enough, you know, I, I hyper-focused when I, when, when I was in stress. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, in stressful situations, it's easy to hyper-focus. If I'm able to calm myself down and, and think, okay, don't hyper-focus, be aware of what's around me. I need to be more aware of how many layers of clothes I'm wearing. Yeah, and think to yourself when you're dressing in the morning, okay, I want to make sure that my gun is underneath my outermost garment. Yeah. And everything else is tucked in. Um, so... I think, uh, let me wrap this thing up. Yeah, I want to wrap it up by saying one thing, and this is something I wanted to get into as a topic, but we ended up having lots of stuff to talk about here. But uh, one thing that I want to encourage our listeners with and something that I've been encouraging myself with is when when difficult situations happen to you or to me, that is the best test of our character, how we react to tough situations. Um, it's It's always easy to be... A really moral or a really good person when life is is easy but as soon as you get challenged by somebody to do better because you did something wrong or if you're in a really tough spot of no fault of your own or somebody else's is just tough uh-huh. the way that you respond to that situation when it's hard when you're mad at somebody when you're frustrated at the world or when somebody's being emotional um, or somebody just does something dirty and double crosses you how you react to that is your is is a, is 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 a great um, reference point to where you're at in your maturity. So uh, there's a lot of examples I can go into that I wanted to, but we'll save that for another podcast. But I just want to challenge our listeners with when when you're when you're confronted with tough situations where it'd be really easy to lash out in anger or to sit down and do nothing. Those are the those are the um, the moments that test the quality of a man and a woman, but we're men, so we focus on yeah. dudes. So, yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Well, uh, make yeah, sure you go, like, go like, and subscribe, and subscribe. Hit that little bell down at the bottom. Turn on notifications. Yeah, uh, and go, so yeah. Go know. watch this junk on YouTube because we want our YouTube views. Yeah. But uh, thank you for listening on Spotify. That's probably where you're at. If you're one of those weirdos using Apple Music. We appreciate you too. And if somehow you found this on iHeartRadio or you found this on Amazon Music, bless your soul. You're weird. We love you. Till next time. Hey, everybody. If you've been listening to the first episodes, you know exactly where this is going. Donovan and I would like to invite the... Tucker Holloway, to be on the podcast. He's a wide receiver and special teams stud mm-hmm. at the Virginia Tech Hokies football team. Uh, he is uh, 
the son of Brody Holloway. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's a deer hunter fiend, and he is an absolute bloodhound on the trail. And most importantly, dude loves Jesus. Yes, very much so. And uh, we'd love to have him on the podcast. He's a busy man. He's getting ready for spring uh, or for winter training with football. So who knows if we'll be able to have him on at any point soon. And who knows if he even listens to this show. But Tucker Holloway, if you're out there, or hey, you're friends of Tucker Holloway and you listen to this podcast, hit him up. Let me know we want him to have a... Uh, we want to have them on the podcast. Anyway, we love you. Stay strong.